I want to make sure I knew how to operate this. It certainly is good to be with you. I've looked forward to this. Actually, I have to credit Doug with getting me to come here. He has been inviting me for several years. And my schedule is such, it's a little hard for me to arrange everything I'd like to do. But I was a little reluctant to come because every time I go somewhere that he invites me, uh, he runs off. So uh, I did not get to see him at Blackwater, Macedonia, but we had a wonderful time there. And I've looked forward to coming here. I have not been associated much with Doug, but I have a high opinion of him because I know his mother and father. And they are wonderful people. And you have uh, others here that I know. I saw Brother Blazer a few minutes ago. Uh, his father was a friend of mine, Brother Howard Blazer. I met Brother Bob McKee a few minutes ago, and uh, he's a good friend with uh, Hugh Fulford, who uh, has been a friend of mine since our college days. And uh, Rob and Mallory Baker were at Henderson during the time that I was doing a lot of the preaching for the Henderson Church, and I always enjoy seeing them. And Mallory's home congregation, I believe, was Blackwater, Macedonia. Sixth Avenue. Well, they were at Blackwater, Macedonia when I was there. Maybe they were visiting. But at any rate, I already feel a kinship with all of you. And I am delighted by the opportunity to be here with you today. I would like to spend a little time just reminiscing and talking about personal things. But we have so much to cover today. And it is so interesting that I'm going to get directly into the lesson. And I hope it will be fascinating to you as it is to me and beneficial to all of us who are here. You may have noticed on the advertising about the uh, three lessons today that one of the overarching themes that we're endeavoring to discuss is why are there so many churches? And I think that's a question that a lot of people have. Many people do not know the answer. They do not understand it. They do not realize how the situation developed as it has, but that's what we're going to be discussing. And I hope before the day is over, we will be able to answer that question. Why are there so many churches? My wife and I were driving here this morning, and I was looking on uh, this side of the street, that side of the street. Here is a church building with one name out front. Here's another church building with a different name out front. Uh, here's one style of architecture. Here's another style of architecture. Here is a church that has one kind of worship. There's one that has a different kind of worship. Here's one that proclaims one plan of salvation. Here's another that proclaims a different plan of salvation. And you do not wonder that many people in our world today are highly confused about religion. And I think about children that are growing up in the environment that we have today. Some of them in a divided home. Father, one religion. Mother, a different religion. Sunday morning comes. Father goes one way. Mother goes another way. Children may not know which direction to go. They don't know whether to go with mother, whether to go with father. Sometimes in their later years, they just don't go anywhere. They were reared without an understanding or a clear concept about what the church ought to be. And they do not know what to do, where to go, what to become. So it is very important, I think, in our world today and in our society today to understand something about why there are so many churches. 
And what I hope to do in our study today and all three of the lessons is to deal with some matters that are historical, but to tie those in with some principles that are biblical. And I want to begin this morning by having a little to say about the original church, the New Testament church. I know that you remember in Matthew 16 and verse 18, Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and his disciples asked him, saying, uh, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I always enjoy reading that because it signifies that they knew that Jesus was no ordinary man. Other than John the Baptist, the only people they could find to compare him with were hundreds of years before Jeremiah or one of the prophets, John the Baptist, of whom Jesus said there's none greater born among women. So they knew that our Lord was someone special, that he was not ordinary, that he was over, above, and beyond the average person. But they did not understand really who he was. Whom do you say that I am, our Lord asked. Simon Peter, who always seemed to be outspoken, spoke up and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Two things to notice about that response of our Lord. One is that there is a difference in faith and opinion. Men had an opinion, John the Baptist, Jeremiah, Elijah, one of the prophets. But that's flesh and blood. On the other hand, there's divine revelation. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God, Romans 10 and verse 17. So that very passage illustrates the difference in faith and opinion. Flesh and blood, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. My Father in heaven has revealed, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. So it illustrates the difference here in opinion on the one hand and faith on the other hand. And beyond that, there is another difference, and that is what flesh and blood said in this case was not true. He was not John the Baptist. He was not Elijah. He was not Jeremiah. He was not one of the Old Testament prophets. But faith, that is, that which was revealed by the Father in heaven, was not only a different from opinion, but it was true. Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, or son of Jonah. Flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell, or the gates of Hades, shall not prevail against it. Our Lord here promised that he would build his church. Wasn't in existence then, during his personal ministry. He spoke in the future tense, I will build my church. And in Mark 9 and verse 1, he said, Verily there be some standing here, who shall not taste of death, till they see the kingdom come with power. It is important to notice in that verse that the kingdom would come 
with power. In Acts 1 and verse 8, he said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. So tie those together. The kingdom is going to come with power. The power is going to come through the Holy Spirit. So then we go to the second chapter of Acts, the day of Pentecost. We began to read. They were all gathered together in one place and with one accord when the day of Pentecost was fully come. And as they were assembled there together, they heard the sounds of a rushing mighty wind. It filled all the house where they were sitting. Cloven tongues, like as a fire set upon each one of them. And they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now put all of these together. The kingdom will come with power. The power will come with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And therefore, when the power came, the kingdom came. The power came when the Holy Spirit came. The Holy Spirit came on the day of Pentecost. And therefore, beyond any question or doubt, the kingdom of our Lord, the church of our Lord, was established on that first Pentecost day following the death, the burial, and the resurrection of our Lord. And we can read about it in Acts chapter 2. So Jesus said, I will build my church. He sent the Holy Spirit and with that, the power. And the church was established or constituted upon that Pentecost day. Then we read about people being added to the church. Acts 2 and verse 47. In Acts 4 and verse 4, we read about how that the number multiplied. In Acts 6 and verse 7, we read that a great company of the priests were obedient unto the faith. And uh, commentators have surmised that there likely were some 25,000 members of the church in the city of Jerusalem in those early days. 3,000 on the day of Pentecost. Later, the number rose to be 5,000 of the men. Someone has said there are always more women uh, than men. And so the number of the disciples likely was at least 10,000 by that time. And then later we read that the number multiplied. The lowest number generally that we multiply with might be a two. And so that would suggest uh, perhaps 20,000. And it said a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And so on and on you read about the growth of the church in the early chapters of the book of Acts. But I want to come to something now that will serve as the basis of our study. I've entitled this first lesson, The Great Apostasy. And the word apostasy means a falling away. We read about the establishment of the church. We read about the beginning days of the church. We read about 3,000, 5,000. We read about how the number of the disciples multiplied exceedingly. That signifies that it was not a small or gradual growth, but a large and immediate growth. All of these things are revealed to us in the book of Acts. And so you think, how wonderful. Here the church is a new institution, just come into being. And already you have this enormous growth in the early church. But then you begin to have warnings. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, I want to show you a couple of things here before I get into that. This is St. Peter's Cathedral in Rome. 
That very building is going to have a lot to do with the history we discuss today. I'll not get to all of it in this first lesson, but especially in our study at 10, we're going to have something to say about this building and the circumstances under which it was constructed. And then here is a picture in the Vatican of the Pope standing at the window of his study or his library and speaking to the crowd down below. And the Vatican is right next door to St. Peter's Cathedral. I've been to St. Peter's Cathedral. I've been in it. I've seen the Pope, not up close, but I've seen the Pope come out on the plaza there at St. Peter's. And I've seen this window that is pictured in this slide. So I know a little about what it looks like over there. I just want you to keep those pictures in your mind because they're going to be uh, related to some things that we're going to talk about in our study. But I want to go then to this idea of the great apostasy. And I want to begin by referring to Acts chapter 20 and beginning at verse 28. You may remember this is where the Apostle Paul called for the elders of the church at Ephesus to come to a place that was called Miletus. And there he met with them to give them certain warnings and admonitions. In Acts 20 and verse 28, it is said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves, that's elders, and unto all the flock, that's the church, over which the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit hath made you bishops or overseers. American Standard uses the word bishop, King James, overseers. To feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Now, elders were the leaders in the early church, as they are today. And I want you to observe that Paul is talking to elders, and what he says to them may be summarized in the first two words of that verse. Take heed, watch out, be on guard. Why? The next verse. For I know this, that after my departing, that is when Paul was no longer among them, after my departing, shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Now think about all of the growth of the early church. 3,000 on the first day, 5,000 men a short time thereafter. Then the number multiplied exceedingly, the Word of God tells us. And yet just a little further down the line, Paul is beginning to warn the leaders of the church, take heed, be careful. After my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And then he says this in Acts 20 and verse 30. Also of your own selves. You might think, well, that could refer to any member of the church. Maybe so in a broader reference. But it seems in the context here to refer to those who were leaders to the elders of the church, from among your own selves, from the leadership of the church, shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night 
and day with tears. To me, this is a remarkable passage. To think about the fact that the church was prophesied in the Old Testament, 700 or more years before it ever came into being, Isaiah chapter 2, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. Daniel 2.44, in the days of those kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, nor the sovereignty thereof left to other people. Here are prophecies that are made hundreds of years before the church came into existence. And now finally it is a reality And what a glorious thing it is. Thousands of people have become members of it. And then you begin to get warnings not long after the church came into being. Take heed. Grievous wolves will enter in among you. And from among your own selves shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So we know from the very beginning that the church was not always going to remain faithful. We know that there was going to be a falling away, a departure from God's original plan. And also in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and beginning at verse 1, the Spirit speaketh expressly. The word expressly is a word that uh, simply means plainly. The Spirit speaketh expressly or plainly. That in the last days, some shall, watch this, depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils or demons, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath given to be received uh, with thanksgiving to them that know and love the truth. So in Acts 20, you have this warning to the elders saying, From among your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. And then Paul over in uh, his letter to Timothy said, Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. And two characteristics that he names here, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meets. Keep those in mind. One thing I want us to observe here is how this occurred. Now then I'm going to reach over for a moment into church history and tell what happened in the early days, especially around the end of the first century and onward. From among your own selves, talking to the elders, Men arise, speaking perverse things. Notice the first line that I have here on the chart, that in the early days, you had elders. Don't overlook the S on the end of that word. It's exceedingly important. Plurality of elders. You never read about one elder over a congregation. It's always a plurality. Elders. Elders over a congregation. In uh, 
1 Timothy 5, 17, let elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. The elders of the church at Ephesus came to Miletus in Acts 20 and met with the Apostle Paul. Ordain elders, plural, in every city. Acts 14 and verse 23. So in the early days of the church, you had a plurality, two or more elders that served as overseers of a congregation. But look at the next step. Over a period of time, congregations began to have one elder overseeing a congregation. And the only difference in line one and line two is, in line two, I've dropped the S off the end of the word elders to signify a single elder ruling over a congregation. Have you ever known a situation, I'm sure you have, maybe true in nearly every congregation, where one man in the eldership stands out in some respect over the others? Maybe a better speaker, maybe a more articulate, uh, maybe uh, he has other characteristics of leadership, and you think about that one man as being maybe the leading elder. And I don't object to that. I think we all have to use what talents we have. But I do think there is a danger involved if we elevate one over another. That's what happened in the first century. Here is one man that becomes the elder over a congregation. And so you have the first little departure from God's plan. Well, then as time went by, you had some churches out here in the country or not in the metropolitan or city areas, and they do not have any men who are serving as elders, and they feel like they need some leadership and some guidance. And so they go over to the city where this one man is the elder over that church, and they say, could you also oversee our work and help us to have leadership in the congregation where we are? And so the third line I put on that chart is elder, singular, over several congregations, plural. Now, this is the way the apostasy began. It began first exactly where Paul said it was. From among your own selves shall men arise. And so you had elders and God's plan, plurality more than... Uh, one, two or more, overseeing the congregation. Then you had one elder who became the elder, the bishop over a congregation. Then you had one man who became an elder over more than one congregation. So he was overseeing several different works in his area. And this developed over a period of several hundred years. Now that's the one thing that all of us need to keep in mind about departures from the truth. They don't come in a big, noticeable way at the beginning. Usually, it is small, gradual changes so that you almost don't notice that something is happening until you look here 10 years ago and now, and you can see what has happened, that there's been a change. So you didn't go from elders in the plural to one man that claimed to rule over the entire church. But that did come to pass. 
and took uh, at least 500 years. So it's gradual. Elders over a congregation, then one elder over a congregation, then one elder over several congregations. And then finally, there came to be two centers of power. One of them was Rome, and the other was Constantinople. And the interesting thing is they were rivals for power. The first man that claimed to be over the whole church was a man named John the Faster in Constantinople, not Rome. But the Bishop of Rome at that time was a man named Gregory the Great. Catholics count him as one of their greatest popes. Although he opposed the idea of having a pope. Because when John the Faster over in Constantinople said, I am the universal bishop. I am the bishop over all the church. Gregory in Rome opposed him. He even called him the Antichrist. Two centers of power, Rome and Constantinople. And Constantinople first claimed to have the universal bishop, the one bishop over the whole church. Now look how things have happened. You start out here, elders. Don't you love the simplicity of the New Testament? And the New Testament church, I do. I love to read about it. What did you have? Congregations. Not a hierarchy. Not some ecclesiastical structure. Congregations of God's people from place to place and city to city. Overseen by elders in the plural. And then elder over one, elder over several. Ultimately, you had two men that claimed to be over the whole church, Rome and Constantinople. And over there in Constantinople, John the Faster said, I am superior. I am the bishop over the entire church. Gregory the Great said, why, that is antichrist to make a claim such as that. That is blasphemy. And yet after Gregory the Great, Rome actually became preeminent and ultimately claimed to have the very thing that Gregory had opposed, and that is a universal bishop over all the church. Now, I pointed out how that in Acts 20, there was a warning, take heed to yourselves, from among your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. But I want to call your attention now to what I think is probably the most explicit prophetic utterance regarding the apostasy to be found anywhere in the Bible. It is in the second chapter of the book of 2 Thessalonians. I'll give you a little background. In the first Thessalonian letter, Paul had talked about the second coming of Christ. And the reason he talked about it was some of them had lost loved ones. They had died in the faith. And they said, what has happened to our loved ones that we have lost, who have died? The Lord said, don't worry about that. 
The trump of God shall sound in the last day. And he told about how that Jesus would be revealed that he was coming again. He was reassuring those who had lost their loved ones. And he even said, comfort ye one another with these words. They got the idea that he meant Jesus was coming back then. That the second coming of Christ was right away. So he writes them again in what we call second Thessalonians, and he corrects their misimpression. But I want you to hear how he corrects it. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, and I begin at verse 1. We beseech you, brethren, by the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and by our gathering together unto him, that's what he had promised them in the first letter, that ye be not soon shaken in mind or be troubled, neither by spirit nor by word nor by letter from us, that the day of Christ is at hand. He's saying to them, now, wait, wait, wait. Don't get the idea that he's coming right away. I don't want you to get the idea that his coming is at hand or immediate. Well, why not, Paul? All right, listen. Let no man deceive you by any means, except there Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come. They thought he was coming back right away. Writes him, says, don't be troubled, don't be excited that the coming's at hand. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day, the coming of our Lord, shall not come except there come a falling away first. And by the way, the Greek word there that is translated falling away is the word for apostasy. Apostasy is actually an anglicized version of the Greek word. So apostasy means falling away. And here's what Paul tells him. He says, you got the idea from what I wrote in my first letter. I talked about the coming of Christ and that our loved ones would be with him, and I told you to be comforted by that. You got the idea that I meant he was coming back right away. Oh, no, 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 no. He said, don't, don't get the idea that he's coming back right away because something else has to occur first. There is something, Paul said, that is going to transpire before the second coming of our Lord. What is it, Paul? He said, that day shall not come except there be a falling away, an apostasy first. Now, we really ought to let that sink in because Paul is saying here, Jesus is not coming back until something else occurs, and the something else that must occur is that there's going to be a falling away from the truth. Remember, he'd already warned about this to the Ephesian elders back in Acts 20. Remember, he'd already talked about this in first, uh, rather in the book of Acts. And in First Timothy, he had said that in the latter days or last days, some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. So he comes along now and he says, that must occur before our Lord comes again. And then he describes 
something about that apostasy. Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come, except there come a falling away first, and that man of sin be revealed. Uh Uh-oh. Not only must there be a falling away and apostasy before our Lord comes again, Paul said that has to occur first, but now he begins to describe what that falling away is going to be like. He said there is going to be a man of sin revealed. That son of perdition who opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he as God sitteth in the temple of God. What is the temple of God? That's the church. And so we're not talking about some civil ruler. We're not talking here about some political figure. We're talking about a religious figure. Sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. That is, that he has the power to give laws and commands and directions in and of himself. He assumes the prerogatives of Almighty God. So bear in mind, these are the marks of the apostasy that are recited by the apostle Paul himself. So I mentioned a moment ago that there was a fight between Rome and Constantinople over who would be head of the church, who would be the universal bishop. We started out with the elders, a plurality in a congregation, then one elder, then one elder over several congregations. There are other steps that I've not set out here, but ultimately you had maybe a number of congregations here under one man and number of congregations over here under one man, and you'd have another man that was over them. And so you begin to develop other titles. These are bishops over the churches. Now you have an archbishop who's above the bishop. Ultimately, you have a cardinal who's above that. And so these great powers begin to uh, formulate in the years of the falling away of the early church until eventually one man said, I'm over the whole church. He was not called a pope. At the first. The word Pope actually simply means father. He was not the father over all the church at the beginning. He was known as the universal bishop. He was the overseer of the entire church. Not one congregation or even a few congregations in a geographical area. But now then he says, I am the universal bishop. I am over all of the church. And I pointed out how there was an argument about this between Constantinople and Rome. And John the Faster of Constantinople said, I am the universal bishop. And Gregory said in Rome, no, you're not. And then an emperor named Phocas, P-H-O-C-A-S, in 606 A.D., declared a man by the name of Boniface III, as the universal bishop over 
all the church. In reality, in fact, therefore, Peter was not the first pope or a pope at all. The first real pope in church history is in 606 A.D., and his name was Boniface III. And the development of that man of sin who sits in the temple of God, holds himself forth as though he were God, took some 500 years to develop. Little baby steps at a time. One little change here, one little change there, until ultimately here's someone that says, I am the universal bishop over all the church. And he was so declared by the Roman emperor. Thus you have the beginning of the full-fledged first universal bishop or pope or father over the church. 606 A.D., well, that would be 500 years since the first century. And so it took about 500 years for this to fully develop. But what I want you to think about is this. Is it not amazing how much we learn about this before it ever occurred? Think about how accurate the Apostle Paul was in the prophetic utterances that he gave. He said, there's going to be a falling away. It'll arise from among your own selves, the leadership, the government of the church. He said that one of the signs is there will be forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath given to be received of thanksgiving to them that know and love the truth. He said it will be characterized by man of sin and son of perdition who exalteth himself and sitteth in the temple of God and holds himself forth as though he were God. One of the names by which the Pope is known is the Holy Father. Is that a name the Bible applies to God? Yes. What did Paul say by prophetic utterance? He said he'll hold himself forth as though he were God. And so he is now called the Holy Father. And in the year 1870... The Pope was declared to be infallible. That is, when he is speaking in an official capacity, he cannot be wrong. He cannot make a mistake. And so he can declare new doctrines that are not in the Bible. The Assumption of Mary. Ignore that. The Immaculate Conception of Mary. He can declare new doctrines that are not in the Bible. Holding himself forth as though he were God. Now, I want to make a point to you right here. I couldn't quit without making this point because it is so vital to our understanding of what's involved with this man of sin and son of perdition. I want you to think about the beginning and the ending of this man of sin. First, the beginning. 
In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 at verse 7, Paul said, The mystery of iniquity doth already work. Now, this is in the same context where he's talking about the uh, development of this man of sin and son of perdition and all of those characteristics that are said about him here. Paul said, the mystery of iniquity doth already begin to work. So what I'm saying is the apostasy had already begun in Paul's lifetime. The seeds of the falling away were already sown. That's the beginning. Now, what is the ending? We look at 2 Thessalonians 2 and the next verse, verse 8. Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now nail this down in your mind because this is vital to a comprehension of what's involved here. It started in the lifetime of Paul, the mystery of iniquity doth already begin to work, he said. And this man of sin and son of perdition will continue to exist through the ages and will be destroyed by the brightness of his coming and the breath of his mouth till the end of time. Think about it. Think about it. What institution? What man, what historical figure can you think of other than one that the seeds of the apostasy already began in the days of the Apostle Paul and it is still with us today and will be here until the second coming of Christ. I would challenge anyone to find any figure in history other than the religious leader that claims to be the one man over all the church on earth, any figure in history that would meet those parameters. So what we have is an apostasy from God's original plan. Remember this, it was no surprise to God. It was prophesied by inspired men, fulfilled in the events of church history, and the characteristics of that falling away matched the signs revealed by the apostles of Christ. Too plain to be denied, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from meats, development of the man of sin, and a falling away from the truth. So I suggest for your consideration that when we begin to think about all the different churches in the world, we have to begin with the realization that the Lord established the church. The Lord shed his blood to purchase the church. There was a prophecy that there would be a falling away or an apostasy from the truth. And it culminated in the development of the man of sin and son of perdition who holds himself forth as though he were God and in the institution of which he is a part. And we're going to take up at that point and go forward in our next study. Thank you for your wonderful attention.